Today in the fabulous 413, Chinese spy balloons have once again engendered a bit of interest nationally, but we'll hear about how a UFO sighting in Sheffield got the attention of the Great Barrington Historical Society and former Governor Charlie Baker. And Dave Hayes, the weather nut, the Florence-based meteorological hobbyist with 52,000 followers in Western Mass and beyond on what this evening's storm has in store Bad for things. us. But first... John W. Olver, born on a cattle farm in Honesdale, Pennsylvania, a 15-year-old graduate of his high school who went on to study chemistry at Rensselaer, Tufts, and MIT, who became a chemistry professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and who would then leave academia to run for office. His obituary reads, Dateline Amherst, a workhorse, not a show horse, is what John W. Olver's campaign called him in a phrase that closely matched his unflashy but solidly productive political career. Olver, who served both chambers of the Massachusetts legislature and the United States House of Representatives for a total of 44 years, died on February 23, 2023, at age 86 at his home in Amherst. The obituary continues, much admired by his constituents and colleagues for his intellect, broad vision, hard work, and attention to detail. Olver devoted himself to progressive causes and to supporting progressive candidates. Joining us are two of those candidates that he supported and whose careers were launched out of his offices, as well as a a well-known author and friend who also helped to uh, corral some of these well-known legislators that join us today, former Northampton Mayor David Narkowitz, who was mayor for about 10 years in the city of Northampton between 2011 and early 2022, Massachusetts Representative Natalie Blay from the 1st Franklin District, elected in 2018, and the well-known author Patricia Lee Lewis who, according to her bio, spent much of her life as an advocate for women, for civil rights, for peace, for a healthy environment, and for small farms and rural community, as well as the arts, and all of whom were aides to and friends of the late Representative John Olver. First of all, thank you all for coming in, and I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you also very much, Monty. Let's start with John Olver as a legislator. When you think back at your time, and I'm speaking to the uh, elected or formerly elected uh, members here, uh, David Narkowitz and Natalie Blay, when you think about John Olver as a legislator, what is something that you'll remember most about him or, or inspired you most about him, Natalie Blay? Yeah, John Olver was the most unlikely of, of politicians, but he was so effective in, in what he did every day because it was never about John. It was always about uh, his constituents. It was about the communities that he served. And you felt that authenticity when you talked with him. Is Uh, that what was unlikely about him? Because the whole workhorse, not a show horse type of thing, and that's rare or? Well, you just don't, when you meet him, you would just never expect that he would be an elected official. And he was so, so smart. Not saying that politicians aren't smart. <laughs> Although I know a few. <laughs> We've had some questions as of late for reasons. Yes. But he, you know, he, his educational background shows he was just such an intelligent person. And what he brought to the position with that intelligence was a deep desire to really dig deep on any issue that came before him to fully understand it, to tease it out, to turn it inside out so that the solution that we came to was always the very, very best. And it brought as many people to the table as 
he possibly could so that you're able to move it across the finish line. He identified who those stake- stakeholders were and, um, and really did an extraordinary job bringing people together. What about you, former Mayor David Narkowitz? When you think of John Oliver as a legislator, what, what are some things that you'll remember about him? Yeah, I mean, I agree with, with Natalie and you know, sort of the anti-politician. I'd worked on the Hill prior to working for John, and I'd worked for several other members of the House. And he was definitely, unlike any, any member of Congress I'd worked for, but definitely as smart as any of them and as dedicated and, um, and, and just his commitment to the issues and his willingness to take tough stands long before many other, whether we're talking about, you know, uh, gay rights or abortion or anti-war. I mean, he was, uh, you, you, uh, so I heard someone use the term like uncorruptible, like he just, he had his views and there was nothing that was going to change those. Um, he was, he had a core set of principles and then he, as Natalie said, had this grassroots approach. It wasn't top-down solutions from Washington. It was get out in the community, uh, bring people together, talk to the municipalities, talk to the CDCs, talk to the folks at community health centers, like what do we need for this district? And then he just had an uncanny way of taking all that data and information um, and translating it into policy and into projects and into, um, you know, and empowering staffers to help in that work. Did such... An unlikely politician influenced your decision to run having worked underneath him. I mean, I always thought I would be a staff person. I, ne- I never thought about running for office. Did I he really, encourage I, you to run? I think he encouraged all of us to, to you know, f- meet our potential and to not think of politicians in sort of the – he used to laugh when – the term, you know, he's not a blow-dried politician because, you know, John was somewhat follically challenged. So <laughs> I know the feeling. He'd get a good laugh out of that one. Yeah. But um, but no, I mean, I think he was a wonk before there was a term wonk, I think. And, and I, that's what I was. I was, I loved the policy and I loved, and but it was like, okay, here's somebody who does all those things um, and he can run for office too. Like, and so I didn't grow up thinking I wanted to be an elected official, but I loved, I wanted, I was a poli-sci major. I wanted to work in public policy. But, you know, seeing him and working with him gave me a different perspective on how you could do that role. Um, So I think that's how I sort of got the courage to say I'm going to run for office. What about you, Natalie Blay? Was uh, John Oliver uh, influential in your decision to run for office? You worked for uh, for other candidates before John Oliver and after, and then uh, ran in 2018. Yeah, like like David, I also never thought of myself as a as a candidate or a politician for that matter. I think what we all learned from John is that this is about public service. It's about being a public servant, and that's why he was so good at what he did because he was really driven by that. Um, And to see him sort of step out beyond that, what he was, well, maybe get a little bit uncomfortable, uh, also allowed me to to consider doing the same Um, because it was very difficult to be someone who was behind the scenes for as long as I was to step out and be the person who was front and center. And I would much prefer to be a little bit more <laughs> <behind> <laughs> the scenes. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> We're speaking with former mayor of Northampton, David Narkowitz, Representative Natalie Blay from the 1st Franklin District, and Patricia Lee Lewis, all of whom worked for the late 
Congressman John Olver, who passed away late last week at age 86 at his home in Amherst. He was uh, a member of both chambers of the Massachusetts General Court, as they call it, on Beacon Hill, as well as a U.S. House member uh, until his retirement and the subsequent redistricting that made it uh, possible for Jim McGovern then to be a uh, part of the representation in this part of the 413, as we like to call it. Patricia Lee Lewis, not only did you work for him in his office, but you uh, were a, a lifelong friend up until uh, his passing just last week. Tell us about who John Oliver was as as a man. Um, well, David and Natalie have really told the truth about him. He was pretty much who he was on the outside and the inside. He he was uh, always extremely strategic person, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. Uh, I met John and Rose, his wife, in 1968 when wow. he was... Uh, I was just brand new in Northampton with a family and uh, very much uh, working, protesting the Vietnam War, and uh, John was too, and he was going to run for the legislature. So I went down to his little office on Main Street in Northampton and picked up posters, as we did in those days, (laughs) and found the bulletin boards. (laughs) So that's how we, we got to meet, was you know, putting our shoulders to the same wheels, I would say. Rose, when when we were starting uh, Every Woman's Center at the university in 1972, Rose was one of the very first faculty people to walk in. She was from Amherst College, certainly the first one from Amherst, and offer her, her help. John was very supportive of all the work that we did. Uh, Rose and I served on the Governor's Commission on the Status of Women, and John would always want to know what we'd done. You know, Mrs. Dukakis was the governor then. Uh-huh. So it was over years. I was, I was working in uh, small farms, women, women in agriculture kind of issues, and, and rural economic development. We started Hilltown Community Development Corporation, for example. So I was a grassroots politician, you might say, yeah. an organizer, advocate for certain things that John was always for, like the APR, the Agriculture cultural preservation restrictions, you know, that was a very big deal. And kind of groundbreaking for its time, right? It was groundbreaking. It was. Yeah. Yeah. And he was for, of course, the bottle bill, uh, but he also was for things like direct marketing that small farmers could do. And I was very much involved with that, whereas a lot of the farmers, big farmers, thought it was a kind of communist plot Uh that we should do (laughs) such things, you know, and it was not These farm shares. I don't understand how that works. Exactly. Yeah, thank All God right. they've changed their minds about that now, but this was a long time ago. So one night I was working at the Hilltown CDC. We had no staff yet, and I was trying to write a grant. It was like 10 or 11 at night, and anybody who ever worked for John will understand mm-hmm. that it didn't matter what time of day or night it was. If John needed to talk to you, you would just be glad to talk to him. He did not have any boundaries whatsoever. And uh, so I picked up the phone. Nobody. We were in town hall in Chesterfield at the time. I can do the voice. Patricia. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And he would always introduce himself, no matter after 40 years. (laughs) Patricia, this is John Olver. (laughs) Who on earth else could it possibly be? And he said, "Um, I'd like for you to think about running for county commissioner. I said, well, tell me about what is a county commissioner, you know? And he said, um, John Garvey was getting 
was going to be sheriff, and he had been a county commissioner, and there was going to be a special election, and there had never been a woman county commissioner in 325 years. And he wanted somebody to represent the rural communities, and he knew that's what I would do. And he said, this is the strategic part. He Mm -hmm. said, and I'm a state senator, and you would be a county commissioner, and Mount Tom is both state and county. Uh And we could work together (laughs) to get that, (laughs) you know? So I realized I was just another pawn in this wonderful (laughs) game of getting things to work that should work, and said, well, I'll try. And sure enough, I won. And uh, we, he, we really did work together on a lot of wonderful things. But, you know, I loved the work. Just, I'm li- like you two. I loved the work. I didn't love the great fundraisers and yeah. things. And I know he didn't either. But I was delighted some years later uh, when he asked me to become his first economic development director when he got elected to the Congress. And it was because of this work with our small communities and then then the district director. And I just have to tell you, one of my best things I ever did was help him hire David Narkowitz uh-huh. to work on his staff <laughs> on the economic development team. So, yeah, he, he um, as a man was entirely unpredictable in so many ways because his energy would just, you would think the person must nearly be dead, you know, of exhaustion. And here he would come with this with this project. But he also was um, incredibly personal. I, my son died uh, actually 47 years ago today, so Ugh. I'm having it's a little bit of a tough time for me right now. But um, we were, the kid, my other two children and I were living on State Street then, it's 1976. And um, John just came over. He just came over, knocked on the door, came in. I don't know what time of night it was. I was still sitting on the sofa all by myself and watching the fire. And he just sat in a rocking chair and he just sat there with me. And that was not an unusual thing for John to do. He just had a feeling. You wouldn't think he would have a great deal of empathy because he was sometimes extremely blunt. And uh, somebody said in some article I read the last couple of days, he, he suffered no fool. But he had a very strong heart and an empathetic way of being. When Rose died, I mean... His wife, John Olver's wife. When his wife died in 1940, in 2014, uh, I was already very close to their daughter, Martha, who is now 53. And I have stayed that sort of like her, I don't know, her... Her aunt from Texas. Her yeah. aunt from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> like a godmother. Yeah. A godmother, yeah. <laughs> and I still am. And uh, so I don't know how else to describe his heart except for the last few years as David and I were talking about in the car coming over here John's main concern was for Martha's welfare Mm. and uh, how deeply that ran in him and she certainly knows that and many of us certainly I will always carry that on for him and for her Coming up What do the late John Olver's aides, Representative Natalie Blay, former Mayor David Narkowitz, and author Patricia Lee Lewis think will be Olver's legacy? We'll hear more coming up on The Fabulous 413.
huge man. <laughs> Figuratively and man. literally. He was extremely tall. <laughs> he was extremely tall, yeah. Patricia Lee Lewis, former uh, county commissioner. I didn't even know that about your uh, backstory, but also now well-known author, person responsible for getting David Narkowitz involved in John Oliver's office. Also joining us is Natalie Blay, the elected representative from the 1st Franklin District on Beacon Hill. If people were to remember one thing about John Oliver as we uh, pay tribute to the man who passed away at the end of, of last week, what what do you hope will be his lasting le- legacy, former mayor David Narkowitz? I was just about to push this. <laughs> We can go to... Yeah, no. Current <laughs> Sorry. state rep, Natalie Blay, is trying to pass them. Now I'm about to pass the mic. <laughs> or lessons to retain with you. Like yes. Yeah. There's so many. I mean, there. I, I think that's what we're all struggling with right now is we learned so many lessons from him in terms of how to do this job um, and to do it in a way where you're always centering the people that you serve. Uh, we learned that a project was never going to be successful unless it was being driven by the community. As David said, he never came from the top down. It all, everything in our office came from the bottom up. And that's why so many of the projects and priorities that he undertook were successful in the end. And, you know, John was deeply connected to nature. Um, he was an avid rock climber up until <laughs> very, you know, very close to the end until he just couldn't do it anymore. I remember um, you telling me you were getting ready to come visit me on the march for the food bank and he wasn't going to come because he was already booked to be rock climbing and this was like <laughs> three years ago. <laughs> he he loved being outdoors. He loved hiking with, with his friends. He loved being in nature. And I think we, you know, when you look at the policies that, in, that he and the legislation that he sponsored, so much of it was around the protection of the environment. He really did an extraordinary job of breaking down silos, you know, to look at the sustainable environment and recognize that housing and transportation and the climate were all connected. He did that in Washington for the very first time, saying, okay, agencies and departments, you have to work together to begin to break down those barriers and figure out how we're going to address these challenges because we can't do it the way that we're doing it right now. It just won't be effective. So he, he, the way he thought, the strategic nature of his brain and how he thought about things was, was so interesting to, to learn. And, and certainly it all helped us to be very prepared because he always expected us to know more than he did about any project. And he was so intelligent that it was impossible <laughs> for any of us to, to get beyond where he already was. So, you know, making sure that we were prepared, making sure that we are identifying the right people. And of course, just always being driven by the people that we serve. From Representative Natalie Blay to former Mayor David Narkowitz, something you hope people will remember about the legacy of the the late John Oliver? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, several of the stories I've read that just, you know, his, his fingerprint, his imprint is sort of everywhere throughout Western and Central Massachusetts. And I think he, he wasn't somebody that was trying to get attention for himself. I mean, you know, there's some stuff named after him, but that was not something he sought or did or did it for that reason. I, I just think he he was in public service for all the right reasons. Um, he was he cared deeply about his country and about the communities that he represented. Um, he cared deeply about issues. I think he thought the country could do 
better in so many ways, whether it was, you know, poverty or education or preserving the environment or a better transportation system. Um, and then he gathered a lot of people around him, staff, but also the communities that he served and found ways very adeptly. I mean, he was, you know, even just the way he managed to get on the committees that people thought, well, why is he going on that committee? Like, what the heck is John Olver going on the Military Construction Appropriations Committee? And I think people were in upheaval about it. But like, he was so strategic. He was thinking about how he was going to get to become, you know, health and how he was going to get to be transportation chair because he knew he could do the most good there. So he was going to do what he could do where he was, but he knew that was going to get him to that end goal. Um, and then leveraging his power on behalf of the people that sent him there. Not leveraging his power for himself or because he wanted to be a U.S. senator or because he had other aspirations, but really leveraging all that power that he had quietly and in a very mild-mannered way had amassed and really sort of focusing it on the districts he served and, and for good. From former Mayor David Narkowitz to Patricia Lee Lewis, longtime friend and staff member of the late John Oliver. So his legacy... Um that it's really possible to serve the people without putting yourself first, that integrity matters. And I was trying to think what I meant by integrity when I said something about that recently, that he was the most, he was the person with the most integrity I've ever known. And and that really had to do with his being clear about what he valued, what was important, and it was what needed help. <laughs> you know, the earth needed help. People needed help. People without health care needed help. Those community health centers were critical in his mind. People needed ways of getting places when they didn't have money. He started in Berkshire somewhere. He started a little bus system that was uh, for people who couldn't get where they needed to get. And this morning I looked a mass live put a, a news story about him and photographs, a couple of which I hadn't seen. And then I toggled down and saw that there were comments coming in from people. And it was the most diverse. All these different things that we've been talking about, people from their personal lives were thanking him, including a couple of guys from Westover, mm -hmm. you know, to mentioning his, his work on the military uh, committee. It, it was many years, of course. I mean, many po politicians make a big difference in 44 years. Mm -hmm. To make so many into, you know, Massachusetts isn't large. The, the district when we were serving with him was very large, although he lost Northampton in this after for the second election. It was taken away from him, and every time we would drive through Northampton, he would say a word that I can't say. <laughs> <laughs> really upset him. That was something he lost. But that idea of, of being who you are, he was an introvert. He was not an extrovert. I remember going in fundraisers with him, Bill Newman's house one time. Who? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Head of the Western Mass Never Office of the of ACLU and former co-host of a show that I uh, love you, Bill Newman. Wow. And uh, there must have been like 100 people in their house. And John just walked in and 
walk to the next room and didn't say hello to anybody. <laughs> he was thinking about something. You know? <laughs> so that kind of, I, it's, since it's genuine, without artifice, mm. intelligent, with a great sense of, of what is important in this world and the willingness to go after it. it. That's the kind of legacy. If we could all be like that, and I think these two people sitting next to me are. I totally, I'm, I'm not being insincere here. Mm-hmm. He, he, he fostered people like himself <laughs> who, who were genuine carers. That's the legacy, I think. I think his arrest record speaks to that as well. Yeah. <laughs> he was arrested several times protesting outside For of For good the, causes each time. Yes. Good right. trouble, as they would say. That's right. That's right. Patricia Lee Lewis, Representative Natalie Blay, and former Mayor David Narkowitz, thank you so much for coming in today. I'm sure it's been tough, the loss of your, your friend and colleague and mentor on the passing of Representative John Oliver, who passed last week at age 86 at his home in Amherst. Thank you so much. Coming up... Chinese spy balloons may have started another UFO craze nationally, but we'll hear about how UFO sighting in the Berkshires got the attention of the Great Barrington Historical Society and former Governor Charlie Baker. Plus, Dave Hayes, the weather nut on tonight's storm, all coming up in the fabulous 413. To boldly go where no man has gone before. Hampshire College Astronomer, Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe. Years and years ago on my first show, On the River, I was talking about astronomy and my love of amateur astronomy. Not a science that I was into as a child, but I read A Brief History of Time, and it changed my whole perspective on science and science education and opened up my mind in a way that has been really exciting over these last few decades. And I said something wrong or stupid on the radio about the world of outer space, and you reached out to me and said, hey, I'm an astronomer from Hampshire College, You got that wrong, and I said, let's get together and talk about astronomy for the radio, and that forged a nearly two decades long conversation about astronomy. And we're here at your kitchen table in Amherst, surrounded by beautiful photos of the rings of Saturn and the surface of the moon. Mars. Oh, yeah, sorry. That's Mars. There you go. That's a correction. (laughs) My first mistake already on the new show. It's red. I should have known it was Mars. I would love these conversations to continue because what you do so well is you are a science educator. So before we get into the meat and potatoes of what we're going to talk about specifically in regards to astronomy and one of our favorite topics, aliens, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, so I grew up in Pakistan, in Karachi, big city. So this is different from being in Western Massachusetts, (laughs) uh, certainly. Um, And so I came here for my undergraduate. I got into astronomy because of Carl Sagan's cosmos. Yeah. There are in fact a hundred billion other galaxies, each of which contains something like a hundred billion stars. It was shown in Pakistan in 1984. I was in ninth grade. And just that first episode just blew me away. Right. And I was like, okay, I want to be an astronomer. As it turns out, it takes a long time after that. So I get here. You can't just watch the complete series, Cosmos, and then be an astronomer. Uh, although a lot of people now think that you can actually watch YouTube videos and you become an expert. But anyway, as it turns out, that is not the case. And I came here, and since I was coming from Pakistan, and there aren't, there aren't that many astronomers in Pakistan or opportunities for astronomy, so I came here for computer science. Uh-huh. Or I should say, and here is my air quotes, computer science because... Is that what you told your family? That is exactly what I told my family. <laughs> and, 
and and to be frank, I didn't know if I would like it or not, right? I mean, actual astronomy, research astronomy can be different, but I loved it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was in New York, I was in Stony Brook, and uh, then I uh, went to graduate school to New Mexico. And my research for my PhD was as mainstream astronomy as possible. I looked for how stars form in spiral galaxies. And uh, that's I, what your thesis was. It? That was my thesis, yeah. and and I used telescopes in Chile, in New Mexico, in Arizona, in Hawaii, in the Spanish Canary Islands. So, loved it. And then for my postdoc, I actually came here to the Valley. It was a, a joint position between fi- uh, between UMass Amherst and Smith College. So it was a fellowship of five college astronomy department fellowship, and uh, they asked me to develop a course on astronomy and public policy. And I had never been to a liberal arts college. Mm -hmm. I'd been to public schools. And in fact, I remember, and at that time, I don't know if it was Google or Yahoo maybe or whatever (laughs) it was, search engine. Ask Jeeves? (laughs) I I actually had to literally search, what is a liberal arts college? Because in Pakistan, we're not familiar with that. And here I wasn't, and I was in astronomy department. I mean, we didn't want to talk to physicists like, you know, when I was in grad school. (laughs) Like, hey, we are astronomers. We don't talk to anybody outside our field. (laughs) And so being in liberal arts college, being at Smith, uh, that was life-changing because suddenly you're talking to people who are like really interested in other fields. And that led to my interest in interdisciplinary work and just fortunate uh, that when I finished, I was four years, I was at Smith and UMass, uh, that I got a position at Hampshire College. That position was an endowed position, very broad. It was like integrated science and humanities. That allowed me to teach courses that are uh, don't follow a specific sort of like, you know, discipline. And uh, I developed a course called Aliens, Close Encounters of a Multidisciplinary Kind. <laughs> where we talk about sort of like all different aspects of how people think about aliens from history, because people have been claiming, making claims about UFOs, to religion, because there are uh, some people who believe sort of like in you know, UFO religion, UFO abductions, and also search for life in the universe. Uh, but my research moved more in the direction of science and society. And a lot of my work um, was in or is in how, especially in Muslim societies, how people think about modern science. And I used biological evolution as sort of like, you know, as a probe to think about these things. But astronomy has always stayed close. I've uh, been connected with you as well in terms of popular astronomy. Uh, I've been connected with Pakistan as well in terms of popular astronomy. You're like the Carl Sagan of Pakistan right now in some ways because you have like a, a web series in Urdu that is communicating science in the same and, and astronomy in the same way that Carl Sagan was doing it in English and that you saw in Karachi in the 80s. Hello, Kainatis. Aajkal, humare solar system ya humare nizam shamsi ke androon ki taraf ek comet. Well, that's very kind of you. But yes, I mean, I mean, I do create these videos. And one of the goals of those videos is precisely that, that I actually never met Carl Sagan in person. And to me, that's a little puzzling that the most influential person in many ways on my life, like who completely changed my direction. And I'm talking to you right now because of that first episode of Cosmos that I watched in 1984, but I never met that person. He, he was just on television. Mm-hmm. To me, that is actually a perplexing thing, a puzzling thing. And so I started creating these videos to a certain degree with a little hope that 
Sagan did not belong to my culture. He looked different and I was privileged enough to understand a bit of English and so on and so forth. But a lot of people don't. And so they can see somebody who's like them and like, you know, they're, hey, you know, he can do PhD. So can I kind of a yeah. thing. And uh, so that's where sort of like the album create these videos. And also, we are also now broadening the same video aspect and we'll be, we'll be creating actually videos for uh, in collaboration with International Astronomical Union. The people that killed Pluto. Oh, yeah, I know. I, I cannot in those videos. I don't think I'm collaborating with them. I think I'll have to be careful. I will have to censor myself. Because they voted to kill Pluto as a, a, a union of astronomers saying, well, not without total just cause, Pluto is smaller than our moon, right? It doesn't clear its own orbit of debris given its gravitational pull. I at least know that. Okay, this is a longer conversation <laughs> which we will have. But I should mention that in Fabulous 413, yeah. Pluto is a planet. Okay, cool. <laughs> so we, we accept all different types that, of planets here in Western Massachusetts. That's the kind of inclusive area we live. Exactly. And so and so these videos are going to be in English. So and 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 some of that focus is also going to be another topic which I think is crucial. It's important and that is about how humans are going to space and settle in space. Mm -hmm. And that is a topic which things are happening. I mean, there are questions about moon base coming up. It's within the next decade. Things are going to happen on the moon, at least, like, you know, in, uh, in terms of human settlement or human presence, bases probably, and then, of course, potentially on Mars. But I don't think we are having enough conversations about the type of challenges it brings, the kind of ethical issues and moral issues that we ought to think about. We should billionaires sort of like set all the rules and coming from South Asia, we know actually the corporate aspect where it can lead from the British East India Company, which only wanted a little trading post yeah, sort of right. like in the 18th century and what happened after that. So I think it's a really crucial time because we are going to go to space or we are going to take those first steps at a permanent basis once, meaning to say once we set up rules, uh, then the later expansion is probably going to be that I am, uh, personally, I'm an optimistic person. But on the other hand, regarding this aspect, I'm actually quite pessimist because I think the momentum and the idealism is missing. The momentum is in the direction of we are going to be doing in space what we have been doing on Earth. Colonization. Kind and of. Cold War. And Cold War. And Cold War, exactly. And... and purely sort of like, you know, unadulterated capitalism, where like, you know, it's the for profits. Not like New England public media. No, exactly. Have come from the for-profit world to the non-profit world. Exactly. And so, so, I mean, that would be great. Like, you know, that if we can maintain, and there are some good things that, for example, the only treaty that everybody agrees on or everybody signed up to regarding outer space was the Outer Space Treaty, which was in 1967, which is actually pretty idealistic, but also a bit ambiguous. I would love to have that idealism and somehow... Right now, that type of thing is missing. But I'm hoping that in this show, we'll talk a lot about these things. So that's another topic which, from the astronomy perspective, from the space perspective, I really want to bring the human aspect, not the sort of the technical aspects. I'm curious about sort of like the cultural, societal factors that are going to impact that we ought to think about when we think about going to space. I'm at the kitchen table in Amherst of Hampshire College and five college astronomer, Dr. Salman Hamid, who I lovingly call Mr. Universe, not because of his physique, but not far off. <laughs>
And we love to talk about science and astronomy in particular. And when, you know, there's a big meteor shower happening or maybe there is a, a meteor that's coming close to Earth, we'll talk about those sort of things. Anything that's going on in the sky and anything that you might have a question about, we'd love to ask Mr. Universe, our resident astronomer. You can email us any questions or even send a voice memo to thefab413 at nepm.org. And I wanted our first segment, apart from just being in Amherst in your lovely kitchen, uh, not far from where you teach, to have some sort of grounding in the 413. Now, I know from you that the Big Bang happened everywhere. So we could talk about the Big Bang and still be talking about the 413. That's a topic for another discussion, but it's fascinating. One thing that has been the news lately is UFOs. The United States, with a, an F-22, I believe, out of Westfield, shoots down a Chinese balloon. And then, all of a sudden... Several days later, all of these other UFOs are getting shot down over Canada, over the United States, and aliens starts trending on Twitter. Aliens is one of our favorite topics. Full disclosure, I believe that aliens, intelligent life, or at least life, must exist outside of this planet. And I believe you believe that too. But what you have taught me over the years is we have no evidence that that's true. Talk to me about our recent spate of UFO sightings and the discussion about aliens that very quickly came up after it. It's a sad story. And the reason is because in general, people who actually look for alien signatures, they actually haven't come out and said, this is it. Let's pull back. Let's focus on this because we've been looking for SETI or we've been looking for life on Mars. This is a much bigger thing. Let's focus on that. This hasn't happened. We're still sending spacecraft to Mars to go through the dirt to hopefully find a dead bacteria or something like that. That is where the actual research is being done. So all of the hoopla surrounding what these things that are unidentified, potentially flying and potentially objects, better described as unidentified aerial phenomena, things in the sky, to jump to aliens is bold. And Carl Sagan had a quote that you probably remember much better than I do about these bold claims. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. To bring this back to the 413, there is a monument in Sheffield, Massachusetts, signed off by Governor Charlie Baker that indicates that there was an alien encounter in Sheffield, right near the covered bridge in 1969. And that's what's grounding it, not just in the fact that 413 is part of the Big Bang and all astronomy, we're a planet, we can really talk about whatever we want. But Sheffield, Massachusetts is the home of an extraordinary claim about aliens. The interesting aspect about this story is that the Great Barrington Historical Society gave it its blessing. They actually officially recognized this, I should say, experience or sighting, uh, which was seen apparently by multiple people. Uh, the central character in here is Tom Reed, uh, who was six years old at that time. And, uh, but it, it wasn't the only one. Other people also saw it. There was apparently, there was also people some talked to on the radio. They called on the radio to talk about it. There was and a small radio station there. People started calling in right calling away. Calling in, yeah. and, and they also mentioned. So There's a great piece from WGBH, our parent company, about, about this very uh, thing. Ah, okay. All right. Great. Shameless plug. So this is one of those things that I want to differentiate between people believing they saw something, people believing that they saw an alien spacecraft or aliens versus are there aliens out there or are there spacecrafts that are visiting the Earth? I think 
people do believe that they actually see things. And in fact, it's actually quite common. Uh, I was just reading uh, recently, there was an incident uh, at the end of the World War II as well, uh, in 1945, uh, on one of the US naval ships. They actually said like, you know, they thought that it was a Japanese balloon, talking about balloons, like, you know, or some Japanese spacecraft, they were considering shooting it down. Whereas the person said, actually, I think it's planet, it's Venus. <laughs> So don't try to shoot down. Venus. Right. So but this is one of those things that if you are in a little bit of a mode of hysteria, then you start seeing other things and and it can impact. So September of 1969, when this UFO incident happened, this was a few months after moon landing. So you can imagine sort of like, you know, that aspect uh, coming in as well. So the common themes in these type of things is about and this was also mentioned with the Great Barrington Historical Society that said like, you know, that it was credible. And a lot of people saw that. And we believe it that this actually happened. But that is not how science works. That is not enough, especially for something a claim as big as aliens to say, this is it, right? So you can be a Nobel laureate, and you come out and say, X, you don't have or maybe to, Q or Q, you don't. Have, that's right. <laughs> you don't have to accept it. And we are trained in that context to a certain degree that if it's a bigger claim, you actually challenge that. Like, you know, and it doesn't matter who makes that claim. Stephen Hawking has been wrong about certain things. Einstein has been wrong about certain things. It's not enough that the people who are making the claim are credible because they may not be lying, but they may be mistaken. And in order to show that is something there, I mean, just imagine about we're talking about Mars and microbes. You don't just say, oh, I don't know, this looks kind of like a microbe, because I want to believe in it. I mean, it's not that scientists don't want to believe that there is life, but we want to be sure, especially because if you want to believe in it, you have to be even more skeptical. You are not being fooled. There is that fine line, Hampshire College astronomer Dr. Salman Hamid, Mr. Universe, between faith and science. And part of the interdisciplinary things that you teach have to do with those perspectives. And we're not trying to say that this person in 1969 didn't see something, that those people in Sheffield didn't see something. All you're saying from the scientific perspective is, that's great, you had an experience, maybe there's a monument there, perhaps don't get the governor to sign off that it was aliens because that becomes problematic. Don't get the historical society to sign off to say it was aliens because there's no proof that it was aliens. There's a claim, people have, have all sorts of claims about things that they see, things that they believe from a religious perspective or not, all that's well and good. That's not science. And the monument, uh, if I remember correctly, has been removed uh, from it. Or at least moved off of what was state property. Right. Yeah. And so uh, I, th I think the issue is more the Great Barrington Historical Society confirming that the experience, not the experience was real, but they, what they saw, the claim was true. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think there is a distinction. And I think that's very important because people can have also have a meaning out of it. Uh, and, uh, and I teach about alien abductions and people who claim to have been abducted by aliens. They actually really believe that it's true and they have a lot of meaning attached to it. And I think that is important to acknowledge that. And I think if you say whether that happened, it depends upon what are you talking about. Did the experience happen? And I would say absolutely. That is true. But there is a separate question if you say, but were there aliens that abducted these people from Earth? Well, that's a different question and for which we don't have enough evidence or we don't have evidence for that. There are alternative explanations that are simpler. Are those things alien spacecrafts? And for that, 
the evidence has to be stronger. Eyewitness testimony is actually not good enough in science. For that, you need better evidence. These are the kind of conversations we're going to continue to have here on the show. If you have a question for our resident astronomer, Dr. Salman Hamid, about the breadth and depth of all things astronomy or the Cold War brewing between the United States and China on the moon or Chinese spy balloons or science fiction films. Right. Or like, you yes. know, our former president of the Amherst Cinema right here. Right. And yeah. so, yeah, I love films and sort of like, you know, especially that tackle these type of questions. Send us your questions and we'll ask them on a future show. The Fab 413 at NEPM.org. Thank you, Mr. Universe. Thank you very much. Bob Kroll, the current executive director of the Great Barrington Historical Society, gave us a statement on the controversial alien sighting monument. He writes, If you haven't seen the Netflix program Unsolved Mysteries, the Berkshire County UFO incident, I suggest you do so. It is a very informative program that highlights the reported events of September 1st, 1969. The Great Barrington Historical Society has no affiliation with the monument in Sheffield. As to the events of that day, we have documented some of the reports that suggest that something unusual occurred that day. Exactly what remains an unsolved mystery. Coming up, we shift from meteor showers to snow showers. We'll talk four county forecasts with the 413's favorite armchair meteorologist, Dave Hayes, the Weathernut. We're joined by someone whose passion for the skies has become our occasional lifeline in trying weather systems. For years, folks have looked to his post to find out more about what's happening in our region and about how weather works in general, which is how I now know what grapple is. Joining us now to talk more about our impending snow-filled doom is Florence Mass's own Dave Hayes, the weather. Wait a minute. Dave Hayes is famous for not having inflammatory forecasts that include words like doom. But thank you for joining us, Dave Hayes, the weather. Now, is this is this a, a doom storm? No, no, no. This is okay. not a doom storm. It's kind of a run-of-the-mill snowstorm. Not a blockbuster, not a little wimpy thing, but we're definitely going to have the plows come out. Okay, so there are four counties in Western Mass. Uh, when we've had you on previously, we had a very small swathe of our area, but now we've got all four counties. How's this storm going to look different in Berkshire County versus where we are right now in Hamden County, let's say? Yeah, well, we've got winter storm warnings out from the National Weather Service for all four counties. And except I think the areas in like the eastern Berkshires, the western hill towns, um, especially western Hampshire and western Hamden County, are probably going to see more like 6 to 10 inches because there's going to be a southeasterly flow of wind that will enhance the precipitation over those areas, Um, whereas the valley itself will probably be more like 4 to 7 inches, I'm thinking. The triangle of snow disappointment, as you've called it. Yeah, what do you, is that what you call it? Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's, it's, with this kind of, it's not so much with this storm, it feels like this is going to be a more kind of widespread, moderate snowfall, like a nice 4, 5, 6, 7 inches of snow. Um, I've seen other storms in the uh, Triangle of Disappointment, which is the Pioneer Valley, where uh, places in the Berkshires get 10 inches of snow and we get like one inch of snow. So it's not going to be that drastic. There'll definitely be more in the uh, Berkshires and the Western Hill Towns, but um, we'll, we'll get some snow, too, here in the valley. So it seems like, as our engineer Betsy Curtis is asking, this snow might be good for snowmen and or sledding? Well, I think... The reality is is that um, most of the snow is going to start moving in between like 8 p.m. and midnight from west to east. And it's going to be pretty dry and fluffy, I think, at first. And then towards tomorrow, the the bulk of the the heaviest and steadiest of the snow falls between like 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. And then it should lighten up a bit as you get later in the morning tomorrow and through the afternoon. That's when it would get a little bit wetter and be like, you know, better for 
snowmen and all that kind of thing. But the thing is, is that the bulk of the snow will have already accumulated by that time. So. So no late night snowmen, but later in the day tomorrow we could be able to be making snowmen. That's it's possible. That's right. It's po- it's it's possible. But it's but most of it should be pretty fluffy, which is good because it's easier to move. Kind of like the snow we had over the weekend on Saturday. You know, we got like one to three inches of floof, as I call it, and uh, you can take a broom to it and push it around. So. The real fun snow globey stuff. Yeah. The, the... Yes. Yes. Dendrites. We love dendrites. What's a dendrite? <laughs> Weather nerd. Uh, dendrite is just—it's <laughs> a type of snowflake, and um, it's dendrites are basically like the really ornamental crystals. If you look at them close, they're they're kind of like the three-dimensional snowflakes. There's other things like plates and columns, which are more flatter. They don't stack up as quick. The dendrites stack up really fast, so it really depends on the kind of snowflake that you get in terms of uh, you know it plays into figure out what's going to how much is going to accumulate on the ground. Dave Hayes, the Weathernut, has 52,000-plus followers on Facebook. He's also on other social medias. He is funded by you, our listeners, <laughs> and the people who uh, want to keep his forecast going. You can support his forecast at westernmassweather.com. And this Thursday, you can watch Kalise and I interview Dave Hayes, the Weathernut, for Connecting Point on NEPM TV at 7.30. We get to talk to him about his music, and you get to hear me play guitar very badly. Ah, I think it's great. Well, thank you, Dave Hayes, the Weathernut, <laughs> for giving us an update on the storm. We, we may need to call on your services again tomorrow. We'll see. Please do it. Thanks for having me. Take care, guys. You too. Tomorrow on the show, a tour of the Springfield-based Mitiera Tortilla Factory to show you how the tortilla gets made. A preview of the Back Porch Music Festival taking over downtown Northampton next weekend, and how the festival has partnered with the city of Northampton to keep live music flourishing in Hamp. And I will face one of my greatest fears, extreme cold, as I take a polar plunge with Northampton city councilors, a famous author, and local rock stars. Better you than me. Musical thank yous to local heroes Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar, Orchestra, Mal DeVisa, Suitcase Junket, and The Fawns. Our director and shepherd of guests is Tony Dunn. Our engineer is Betsy Cortis. Sledding enthusiasts. Indeed. Our technical team is Kara Foster, Bart Rankin, and Punk Dubay. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Cleese Smith. See, See you tomorrow, tomorrow in the Fabulous, fabulous 413. 413.